Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. Thank you for joining us. We're going to use this space to hold frank and interesting conversations with our experts on staff. We plan on having discussions on our advocacy efforts, our commitment to the nation's seniors, our humanitarian relief work, and on our organization's history. The podcast is a great way to keep up with B'nai B'rith International. If you're new to the on-demand audio format, it's an easy way to stay informed during your commute to work while you're at the gym or just tidying up around the house. Now, before we get started, a little bit of housekeeping. Be sure to visit our website, benebrith.org, for more information on the content you hear today. You should also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And keep an eye on all three of those channels for the next episode of the show. Joining me today is my colleague, Mark Olshan, Associate Executive Vice President of B'nai B'rith. In addition to uh, his administrative functions here at B'nai B'rith, uh, Mark also serves as uh, Director of the Center for Senior Services, and he develops, manages, and executes B'nai B'rith's affordable housing program, something we're going to talk about today. He's been with B'nai B'rith since 1983. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. B'nai B'rith uh, has really been a pioneer in the area of affordable senior housing. How did it begin? Who was responsible for getting it started? What was the reason for it? If you can bring it from there and perhaps up to where we are today. Sure. Um, back in the late 60s, um, B'nai B'rith uh, was a very different organization. We had uh, a number of um, lay leaders around the country uh, interested in a variety of different um, issues and, and, and um, um, ideas. And there was a group uh, that were very interested in um, senior housing. They were primarily from the building trades. Uh, Abe Kramer from Pottstown, Pennsylvania, um, and then moved to Harrisburg. But uh, he was very instrumental in pulling together this group of uh, dedicated volunteers um, who wanted to develop housing uh, for uh, low-income seniors uh, under the auspices of B'nai B'rith. And um, he then recognized he needed to petition the Board of Governors of B'nai B'rith in order to get them to recognize this as a formal program that um, we could undertake. Uh, and so he and a number of other colleagues uh, and other volunteers um, basically went out and did a feasibility study. They brought in a consultant. They checked around to get a sense of what the need was in the various communities. And then they recognized that there was a program that was available at HUD at the time. It's called the Section 202 program of the Affordable Housing Act and uh, basically made available money for community-based not-for-profits like the B'nai B'riths in the various communities around the country. And they would provide the, um, the dollars, and then the group of volunteers would provide the sweat equity to get the programs started. And that's really how it, how it kind of came together. They then petitioned the Board of Governors at uh, B'nai B'rith, who then created officially the B'nai B'rith Senior Housing Program, and then was working with a group of volunteers in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And in 1971, they submitted an application, got funded to HUD, and um, opened the first of the buildings under B'nai B'rith auspices in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And how does, how does it work when you apply? You have a, a local board, a local group of volunteers. What is it that, that we do as B'nai B'rith, and what is it that they do um, together with HUD to bring these projects to fruition? Basically, the local group is responsible for um, putting together um, all of the local information. That is, they help establish what the need is in that community. 
They talk to various other agencies in that community about, that deal with, with housing issues, and they get a sense of what the population is and what the general need is. They then work with our office here in Washington, and we help them then pull together what we call the housing development team. That is, we get them a housing consultant and an architect and the various professionals required to pull together the, the application. We then put together our part of the application here in Washington, which talks about our experience, um, and then we coordinate the local application with the national application. The, the local um, consultant then marries the two, and then the, the application is formally submitted. Once the application is submitted, it's under the Benebrith auspices, but there's a local corporation, and then there's us here in Washington. And so we, it's kind of a, um, it, it's a, it's a partnership. Between, so from start to finish, how long does it take from the, the initial uh, application to the completion of one of the properties? Let's take Harrisburg as an example. In general, Harrisburg, uh, basically, um, it can take anywhere probably from six to eight months at a minimum to sometimes uh, we've worked on applications and submitted them uh, two or three, four years in a row before they actually get funded. So from if, if everything goes well and you start putting together an application, within three, four months, you can pretty much have a packet ready to submit. There is a notice of funding availability called a NOFA that's established each year. Um, and then at that period, they accept um, local community groups to submit those applications. Once you submit the application, then there's the whole funding process uh, where you basically sit back and wait. They review the applications. They might ask you to make changes, um, clarify certain things. There's a period of going back and forth. And then once everything is finalized, then it's submitted. And then you hope for the best and hope that you got funded. So Benebrith is the sponsor but you're working with the Department of Housing and Urban right. Development. So when the housing is, is ready to go and the apartments are ready to go, they're available on a uh, non-sectarian basis. To totally non-sectarian. And then HUD provides a, um, a whole list of, of things you can and can't do. Um, you have to um, make it available in certain publications. You have to um, um, work with uh, in uh, fair housing you know, laws and, and guidelines. Um, and there's a whole kind of a checklist of ways that you advertise that you have something available. And you certainly cannot in any way shape the type of residents you're bringing in. As long as they're qualified, then they're open to, um, to be accepted to, uh, to the property. So today, if we can bring it forward 40 years, so we've got how many properties, how many apartments, how many residents... We've got roughly now uh, about 42, 42 properties. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. It's about 35, 30, 36 or 37 actual properties. When I say that, we have about 40 funding reservations. So, for example, in, um, in Silver Spring, Maryland, we had Homecrest One that was funded in 1979 and established in, in, in um, Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, a few years later, we put in for Phase Two. So now we have another building on the same campus. So we have Homecrest House 1 and Homecrest House 2. And then some years later, we did a third building. So we have Homecrest House, Silver Spring. There are actually one building but three phases. So it's kind of a, you know, how many fund reservations versus how many actual buildings. So we have like 30 through 32 actual buildings. We're in 27 communities around the country. 
And uh, we serve right now about 8,000 um, senior citizens on a regular basis. There must be waiting lists to There's get waiting lists in places. every building. Some wait lists have been closed for two, three, four years. Um, others, every year or so, they might open up. Um, and uh, it's an enormously difficult situation because um, given uh, the priorities of the federal government over the last number of years, uh, the numbers of dollars available to provide for these kinds of, uh, of properties are um, significantly different than they were back when. You know, the late, the late 70s and early 80s, that was kind of the heyday. And then um, it uh, started tailoring off. But um, there is a significant need. There will always be a need. Um, I like to say I'm the first year of the baby boom generation. Um, there are a lot of people behind me. And uh, as I reach the age of 70, um, there's a lot of people behind me who are going to be looking for housing. And so the need is only going to get greater. Um, unfortunately, the dollars being spent... Um, to provide these properties are um, um, being reduced. Well, we've been a, a pioneer in this field, but I'd like to move the conversation now to, to advocacy for seniors, um, speaking up for the needs of seniors in, in state legislatures, in, in, in U.S. Congress. Um, we have really moved to um, emphasize that focus in our programming for seniors in, in recent years. Tell me a bit about that. Sure. Um, well, again, because of our housing expertise, um, we were there when it started. We know when a property opens. We know when the residents come in. We know how um, 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 people age. We know how buildings age. We know how the programs age. Um, we have a sense of what aging in place is all about. And so we got to know very clearly what the needs of the residents of our buildings were. And so while we were prov providing this, the bricks and mortar, you know, um, and we were providing the actual housing, we got to know very quickly that there were other issues that our, our residents faced on a daily basis. Access to, um, to health care, access to support services, um, and all the other income protection kinds of things. Um, and so we started to develop um, more of a, um, an active voice, if you will, um, with regards to the, the major issues uh, affecting seniors today, Medicare, Medicaid, um, income protection, um, housing, um, and, and access to support services and all the other things that, that we feel are productive for a healthy aging individual. Given the fact that we've, we've been in, in housing and now in senior advocacy, do we, do we hear from seniors? Do they contact us directly all, and with questions about how all, do I do this, all the time. filling out that form, what does this all the time. Uh, we, new we, legislation mean? Yeah, we, we, get, uh, we get calls all the time. Uh, a, people looking for housing. B, people uh, who say my, my mother or my father uh, is in a certain situation. Um, how do I deal with it? And that are not even housing related, but healthcare related or, or um, um, needing issues, how to deal with Medicare, how to deal with, with the bureaucracies, how to deal with prescription drugs. Um, all of those things which are very complex for older persons in particular to do on their own, um, we provide a lot of um, direct support to, to people who, who want that help. We comment on the federal budget as it relates to, to seniors' needs. What, what is it that we're going to be looking for the next time around? What will you be looking at? Well, un unfortunately, the priorities of uh, our federal government have changed drastically certainly in the time that I've been here at B'nai B'rith. Um, back when, um, housing, there was a formal national federal housing policy. Um, there was strong emphasis on 
providing for low-income individuals, both in public housing and for senior housing, um, as well as for, for, for handicapped. Um, those priorities have since changed. Um, and now the, fe the federal budget at, at uh, Housing and Urban Development, 80% um, of the budget is almost basically exclusively for expiring contracts. That means most of the money that's allocated towards HUD now goes to pay for residents who are currently being housed. That means there's virtually nothing left to build new housing. And so we're now faced with finding other programs that will help to leverage resources to develop further further housing that we that we can use so we're looking to other types of programs so the federal budget when it comes to our housing policy um, it's going to be um, more of the same if not worse in the coming years and that uh, we have a we work with a number of uh, other agencies and groups in the uh, in the Washington area we're involved with a number of, um, of coalitions the elderly housing coalition with which we were a a, um, a founding member um, back when um, is very active and uh, has been working with uh, with uh, the secretary at HUD um, and HHS for the last number of years um, to try to find ways to to make our um, our case that um, housing specifically with supportive services makes the most sense for persons because you can save a tremendous amount of money on the health care side by providing an individual with support services in a housing uh, environment. Because if you send somebody prematurely to a nursing home, um, you're going to end up paying, say, $8,000 a month, which is basically what, uh, what a, a Medicaid bed might cost. Whereas if you're providing a support service in a housing environment, it's significantly less. I've forgotten what grade I was in, but I know we read The Other America by Michael Harrington. And I remember a chapter on seniors being a, a silent uh, group in this country that wasn't being heard. Their needs weren't being heard. Um, you talk about working with other organizations, and even though we assume that uh, in the Jewish community we have a very high proportion of seniors, nevertheless, the work that we do uh, really benefits everybody, or we look to benefit everybody. Um, how would you say over the years um, the, the, the issue of seniors or attention to seniors' issues uh, has, has, has it grown in terms of awareness? Uh, has it gotten stuck at a certain point because of budgetary issues? Where do you see it? I think the, the, the basic answer to that is yes. Um, there's been a much more growing awareness of the problem. There's been a growing understanding of the needs of older persons. There's certainly an understanding of the enormous increase in persons who are 65 and older. Uh, the graying of America is not a myth. It's here. It's been ongoing for a number of years and, and continues uh, each day. And so the, the awareness of the problem is there. The problem, though, is in how you address it. And getting the dollars, I mean, our, our funding priorities are such that, as I said earlier, um, have, are just not geared to people-oriented types of programs. They are... If you look at the HUD budgets, uh, they have, they've diminished over the years. Um, there's less emphasis on developing programs for low-income persons. Um, and like I said, we're now in a, in a, in a mindset that we can, if you can find ways to show that you can save money by providing housing on a health care side, 
that is beginning to make sense. So that resonates with a lot of people on the Hill who say, well, you know, if you can save us money on the healthcare side, then maybe we're more open to the housing side. And that's the approach that we've been taking over the last number of years. And, and now there's, there's supportive research. And we do have, we work with AARP and other major organizations, um, and there's a lot of actual research now coming out that show that, that if you can provide a supportive housing environment, you can save money down the road on the healthcare side. And that's where you get people to resonate that, yes, it makes sense to invest here as opposed to waiting down there where it's a much more expensive process. And we'll continue and to we'll continue. Uh, exactly. hammer that message home. Uh, and, that's, and that's the only thing we can do at this point. Well, our guest today has been Mark Olshin, who's Associate Executive Vice President of Benebrith International. He also directs Benebrith Center for Senior Services. Mark, thank you for joining us today. We, we appreciate it. Thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode of the Benebrith International Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it just as much as we have. Again, a reminder, please visit our website, benebrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and tell a friend if you like what you've heard. For my colleague Mark Olshin, I'm Dan Mariashin. We'll talk to you next time on the Benebrith International Podcast. <laughs>